Well, we got our Christmas tree this year the day before Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's an advanced move right there. So I got it out in the yard and, and uh, in a bucket of water to, to help it start, start drinking some water and keep it fresh a little bit longer. And so Friday, we were ready to put it into the house. And so, and so we did. And my wife is a preschool teacher, and so she is great about involving the kids in all of the, the decorating customs of the house, and in this case, particularly, decorating the Christmas tree. And I, I shared this story with some of our uh, members up at John Knox Village in Covenant Living this week, but they, uh, she handed out the ornaments. We only had a couple of casualties with uh, the broken ornaments, and, and uh, they got them all distributed onto the tree, except that every single ornament resided within about a two-foot square on this part of the tree as our oldest is only about four years old. Um, and so Amy went back, of course, and distributed the, the ornaments universally across the Christmas tree. You know, as I, but as I looked at that and I saw that, I, I wondered if in some way that isn't how God sees our attempts at church, at being the church in the world. And it really only is when God's Spirit gets involved and begins to rearrange our best attempts that we really become the body of Christ. Um, I invite you to open your Bibles this morning as we open up to what will feel like sort of the first Christmassy text um, that we have that I've preached from this Advent season, uh, open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and we're going to begin right there at verse 1. Listen for the word of the Lord. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, I'd like for us to approach the text with two different questions. First is, what does this text in Mark say to us about the character of God? And what does it say about our human response? Mark's audience was wrestling at this time with, with questions about whether or not the Messiah would, would come. The, the people that Mark would have been writing to, the gospel writer would have been writing to, are, are wondering 
whether or not the Messiah is going to show up and who the Messiah would be. And like Mark so often does, he dives right in. He gets right to it. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are many that believe that, that this first verse, not even a sentence, that this phrase was really intended to be the title of Mark's gospel, which would make the following words here in verse 2, in fact, the first intended words of the book, this Old Testament prophecy. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Mark alludes, Mark alludes here to promises that had been made in the Old Testament, promises about what God would do. And here in the gospel, how... How does Mark follow that up? By writing that John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark begins his gospel with a promise of God from the Old Testament and then remarks how God has kept that promise in John the baptizer. Promise made, promise kept. I think I've shared this story with some of you before, but, but it bears repeating here. Um, the Last Dance is an ESPN and Netflix production chronicling Michael Jordan and the Bulls' dynasty through the lens of their final season together. Has anybody seen this on Netflix here? It, in my estimation, for whatever it's worth, it is exceptionally well done. Even if you are not a sports fan, the, the personal stories they tell of, of struggle and failure, of success, as seen through the eyes of these different people is incredibly compelling, and, it, and it's a master class in the art of storytelling. In each episode, as you might imagine, there are these reels of highlights that play, spectacular play after spectacular play, a shot, a dunk, and a, a steal, and then there's one play that's shown repeatedly, and I'd seen before as a sports fan in a number of Jordan highlight reels, and it's this clip of Michael Jordan catching a pass and dribbling once to his left and then hitting a jump shot from about the free throw line, and then he jumps up into the air, pumping his fist in celebration. It's an iconic moment in U.S. sports history. What I didn't know until watching this series was, was that this play was, was the game-winning shot of a deciding game five of a playoff series. This particular moment in Jordan's career happened before he had ever won any of his six NBA championships, before he became the Michael Jordan that sports fans recognize. This, this play, this shot, was a legacy-building kind of shot. And it occurred to me that each of these highlights, each of them has a story, a setting, a, a context, apart from which the highlight actually has very little worth and, and meaning when it comes to understanding the greater story. Its context provides its meaning, its real meaning, 
And when we see it without it, without understanding the context, it really is just eye candy. Well, Mark chapter 1, verse 6 is this kind of verse that without context, without some kind of story, we miss its, its larger meaning. We, in fact, are prone to, to thinking that the gospel writer just simply wants us to know that this John dresses strangely and has an unenviable diet. <laughs> but here's a story they would have known. It's that in 2 Kings, there's this story about an interaction between Elijah, King Ahaziah of Samaria, and the king's messengers. Now, the king's messengers are out on the road when they encounter Elijah, and Elijah tells them to go back to the king with a message. Now, for us today, the message is not the important piece, but rather the clothes that Elijah is wearing, clothes used to identify his purpose. In 2 Kings, the king says to the messenger, what sort of man was he who came to meet you and gave you the message for me? And this is how they answered him. They replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. In, in other words, this man was identifiable as the prophet Elijah, because of his attire. You see, the king responds to them saying, oh, you mean Elijah. Because of what he is wearing. It's exactly the detail that Mark includes here. John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist. In these few words, Mark is very clearly identifying John as a prophet like Elijah. It's a Jewish tradition at the Seder meal during the celebration of Passover to leave an empty seat for Elijah, whose arrival will herald the advent of the Messiah. Elijah's presence will mean the Messiah is coming. Mark wants them to identify John with Elijah as a way of understanding, friends, the Messiah is coming. Remember that promise made, promise kept pattern that we read in the first few verses. What is it that John says? When he arrives on the scene, he proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Without looking at your Bibles, can you guess what the very next verses of the Gospel of Mark say? At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth. In the very next verses, Jesus appears. In the first 11 verses of Mark, this pattern emerges of, of promise made and promise kept. Promise made and promise kept. Mark establishes something about the character of God in his opening verses, and that is that God is a reliable God. 
And God's promises result in tangible activity in the world. Now, what does our scripture this morning say to us about our needed human response? Isaiah is quoted in the beginning here, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John goes further in defining what that is going to look like to make his paths straight. John says it means, it means confession and repentance. It means confession. It means heart-opening, soul-bearing confession and repentance. That is a, a turning from those behaviors that lead you away from the Creator and a turning towards those behaviors that will lead you towards the Creator. Well, friends, let me ask you, what are those behaviors or habits that you need to confess and repent of this Advent season? What are those behaviors and habits that, that you make excuses for? The habits that we justify to ourselves as, as we go about our day or as we lie in bed awake at night? Perhaps it's that one or handful that you are thinking of now. In his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey says about justifying our behaviors. He says, justifications are lies we tell ourselves in order to continue doing the things we know we shouldn't. Isn't that good? Justifications are the lies we tell ourselves in order to continue doing the things we know we shouldn't. We know, for the most part, what we should and shouldn't be doing. We know what behaviors and habits are dragging us down are turning us away from the Creator. So what are those areas of your life that, that need preparing for the way of the Lord? John pleads with the people here, prepare the way so that you may receive the Son of God. What, what John makes clear to them, what John wants to make clear to them is that, is that the preparing, the preparing is for their benefit, not for God's. In other words, somehow, in some way, human activity and response matters on the cosmic stage. The question that Mark wants his readers to ask in his first few verses is no longer the question, will the Messiah come? But will you be ready or will you miss it? Which in turn invites us to ask the question, if we're not ready for Christ's coming, can we miss it? If we are unrepentant, if we don't confess of our sin, can we miss it? How our receiving of Jesus Christ works together with our behaviors? It's a matter of significant theological debate, but what is indisputable here in Mark is that there is a relationship between repentance and the confession of sin and our ability to receive 
the grace that Christ offers. Let me say that again. What Mark makes clear is that there is a relationship between repentance and the confession of sin and our ability to receive the grace that Christ offers. Now, I'm not arguing that it's conditional. It's a complex relationship, and the reformer John Calvin articulates that far better than I can. He says this, Repentance is not placed first, as if it were the ground, grounds for the forgiveness of sins, or as if it induced God to begin to be gracious to us. But humanity is commanded to repent that they may receive the reconciliation which is offered them. John Calvin says, look, it's not, it's not that we repent and so then God has to forgive us and offer reconciliation. But we are commanded to repent so that we may receive the reconciliation offered. In, in getting our Christmas tree as early as we did, I am very conscious of the fact that this thing may dry out and turn into a tinderbox in our living room before Christmas comes. And so I'm being diligent in watering this tree like I have never been diligent before. And you'll notice when you, when you buy a Christmas tree, they cut off the last inch or two, or they should, of the trunk in order to expose fresh tree. This is critical in allowing this fresh layer of the tree to be able to take up water, and that's what keeps the tree fresh longer. Because what happens is, is over time, sap moves from the tree to cover the wound, to cover up where the tree was cut down, and that sap hardens, preventing the tree from taking up the life-giving water even when it is present. There is something about sin, about our behaviors, that can gum up the works and prevent us from receiving the life-giving water that Christ seeks to provide. We don't repent so that we can earn God's grace. We repent in order to enable our souls to receive it. Does that distinction make sense? John's is an earnest plea to prepare ourselves to receive it. Will we? Are we ready as God's people to receive in fullness the living water that Christ promises? Will, or will we allow our, our stubbornness, our sin, our junk, our stuff to harden us and make us unaware of Christ's presence in our midst? Will we miss it? Friends, if we will prepare, and I don't mean if we'll get the shopping done just right or if we'll decorate the tree just so or if we'll gather the right people together. Those are all good things but have little bearing on what being prepared for Christ's coming looks like. And so here is the good news. Is that if we will confess if we will repent 
the reliability of God promises that we can't miss it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.